find, you want to keep them open and look. If not, you want to start digging for it again and finding it in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 9. We've been spending the last couple of weeks in the book of Isaiah talking about his prophecies, and the, namely the two big prophecies that we find in, in, his, uh, in his book about uh, the Messiah. We started uh, three weeks ago in Isaiah 7 and talking about the, the son that is, that is going to be born named Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And then last week, just filling in some information that help us uh, connect the dots between chapter 7 and then now our passage in chapter number 9. So if you'll keep your Bible open and take a look through that as we look through those portions together. Father, bless, please, our time as we study your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that as you speak, we would listen. We pray that you would feed us with the bread and the milk of the word that give us the nourishment that we need. It says uh, your word tells us by it we grow. So we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts that we may not only read it and understand it, but then apply it and obey it. We pray this all because of Jesus. Amen. Judgment has been pronounced on the people. You're familiar with what's been going on. Both Israel and Judah are going to be punished for their sin. Back in Isaiah 8, what we looked at last week, Isaiah describes the type of judgment uh, that they're going to face in uh, very, very uh, dark uh, words. He uses terms like deep darkness, anguish, and distress to describe what Israel is about to go through and will be under for many, many years to come. There is no chance for appeal. There is no chance for uh, uh, escape. They're not getting out of this. Judgment, discipline, and punishment will come. Darkness will descend upon the land. There will be distress and anguish on every side. But there's good news. There is hope. If you look back in the last verse of chapter number 8, in verse number 22, and I'm, and I'm reading out of the ESV. If you don't have an ESV, I put that in your bulletin this week if you want to follow along so you can see that there. It says, And they will look to the earth, but behold the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now, nine, chapter 9 is kind of a break for us in our Bibles, but as it was written before then, they didn't, Isaiah didn't write with numbers. He didn't write, okay, chapter 9, how am I going to start this one off? He just wrote... And then sometime years later, verses and and chapters were added. So verse number 1 of chapter 9 is a continuation of the thought presented to us in chapter 8, verse 22. So the very end of chapter 8 says they will be thrust into thick darkness, but it continues, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And through the prophet Isaiah, God reminds his people that he will not abandon them. He will not forsake them, even though it may seem like he's hidden his face. Even though it seems that he has forsaken them, he really has not. In chapter 9, Isaiah further explains 
the promises of Emmanuel that were made back in chapter 7. If you want to go back to chapter 7, and we'll just refresh our minds here, of chapter 7 and verse number 14. Uh, Isaiah was uh, talking to a king named Ahaz, and he was told to, to ask God for a sign and, uh, of God's promise that he would uh, be with them and, and take care of them, and the king would not. He was, a, he was an unbelieving king. And so the Bible says in verse 14, because he wouldn't give him a sign, there, uh, he wouldn't ask for a sign, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. This was the promise that was made back in chapter 7, but chapter 9 now fleshes that out a little bit more. It helps them to understand what this means for God's people. What does the fact that God with us have to do with the judgment that we're about to go into? How does it matter in my situation right now that God is with me and on into the foreseeable future? Well, as Isaiah 9 begins, because God is with us, there is still hope, even though we are being punished, even though there is judgment, even in the dark, God is with us. And that means there is hope. Because God is with us, there is always hope. In chapter 9, Isaiah points the people to God and specifically to what God will do for His people to provide hope for the future of Israel. So that's what I want to, I want to point out to you. There's so much in this passage here, but I really want you to, to stay focused on the things that God will do for His people. What will God do to bring hope to Israel? So as we read about what God is going to do to bring hope, first of all, we read that He will bring light. The land lies in deep darkness, but God brings light. And it will be a great light. Look at verse number two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them His light shone. Now the greatest need for somebody who is in the dark is to have light. And that's exactly what God provides them. He doesn't give them something extraneous. He doesn't give them something that is unnecessary. He gives them just what they need. They're in the dark. They need the light. He shines on them a great light. Now this light began in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. We saw we go back in verse number one and you can see that it says uh, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. He's talking about what happened. What he's talking about here is when the judgment came, it first came to Zebulun and Naphtali based on their location. Uh, they were the first uh, of the of the of the whole place of Israel to be conquered. As uh, the king of Assyria came down from the north, they were at the north of the Israel's borders. And so they were the first to be conquered. They were the first to endure that shame and that judgment. But what happens is, is it goes on because it, that they were the first to be shamed, but now they're the first to see the light. And that's what, that's what he's, he's getting at here. And the dark, the light began in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and it continued to spread from there. Now back in verse one, as I said, they were the first to succumb to the darkness and captivity, but now they are the first to see the glory of God. We see that fulfilled in Matthew 4.13 when uh, it says that uh, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then Matthew goes on to quote exactly what we a portion of what we read here in Isaiah 9.1. So even though Judah and Israel have forsaken God, and even though they're receiving His judgment, And even though they sit in darkness, 
There is still hope because light will come. Next, we read that God will bring great joy and rejoicing to a people in anguish and distress. Look in verse number 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, Isaiah describes this joy in two different ways. He first describes it as a, as a kind of joyous celebration as at the harvest time, when the fruits of all their labor are finally enjoyed. It's that sense of satisfaction and happiness when all of the harvest is brought in and all of the hard work finally pays off. There's celebrations, there are festivities, there's feasting, there are parties, there is gladness, there's rest, there's relief. Those of you who have a harvest to bring in every, uh, every fall, you know that feeling that you get when it's finally done. You might not get to sit back and, and relax for, for a long, long time, but for a little while at least, you can rest knowing all of that work all year long finally paid off the barn is full. There's, there's plenty of food. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and what I spent all spring and summer doing, I will finally enjoy because of harvest. There's gladness. But this joy that Israel is going to uh, have is not a product of their efforts. It's not the fruits of their labor. So why are they rejoicing? If they didn't plant, if they did an effort, they, why are they rejoicing? It's because God will multiply the nation. It says there in verse 3, God multiplied the nation that had once been whittled down to something so small. He calls it a, a remnant, a tiny little remnant, will once again become a great people. And it is God who does this, and it is for that reason the people rejoice. But also he says that this joy is like winning a battle. Not just like winning, not just like getting a harvest at harvest time, but also like the, the feeling of victory, the feeling of triumph. That, that's what the last part of the verse is talking about there as they, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's as if they have won this, this hard fought battle, a long battle that finally comes to an end and they emerge on the right side of it and they're, they're dividing the spoils of war. And they've persevered and they've emerged victoriously. They're tired and they're weary. But now this victory has given them a, a second wind, a rush of energy and emotion. And they leap for joy and raise their hands in triumph. Think about the locker room of the winning team at the end of the championship game. They're excited. They're, they were Five minutes ago, they were tired. They were worn out. They were, they were bruised and beaten. But those same people can go in the locker room and celebrate like they just... Like they, like they never fought anything. Like they have all the energy in the world. Yes, they're tired, but they're on this, this high of emotion because they are victors. They are the champions. And this is, this is how uh, Israel will celebrate. They'll leap for joy. They'll raise their hands in triumph. But once again, not because of a battle that they fought. They get to celebrate a victory that they did not fight. They get to celebrate a win that they didn't, they didn't, they didn't do anything about. It's kind of like when your team wins the Super Bowl. You're excited, right? You say, we won. No, you didn't. They did. Did you have any part in that? They didn't even know you were watching. But you say, we won. Yes, I'm so excited. You, you get to enjoy something that you had nothing to do with. And that's where Israel is. They're, they're celebrating a win that they didn't have to fight for. 
They rejoice before their God because he has given them this great victory. But then we see that hope moves from the good thing received, like light and hope and, 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 and victory and joy and rejoicing, to the bad things that have been removed from them. Firstly, God brings deliverance from bondage. He brings freedom. Look in verse number four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That's an interesting little phrase there, as on the day of Midian. Isaiah is, is pointing back to a time in Israel's history when at another time they were oppressed. And it was at another time when they were in bondage when a different enemy was their trouble. And he goes all the way back to Judges chapter 6. And we won't read any of that, but if you want to look at that later on, Judges chapter 6 is about the the nation of Midian. Midian was the scourge of Israel at the time. And the Bible says in Judges 6 that that during this time when they were oppressing Israel, the people of Israel would plant crops and the the Midianites would come in and and it says like locusts and they would come in and devour all of the food and all of the crops that had been planted and then leave the, 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 the land like a waste. It would look like a wasteland after Midian got done with it. And after, for years, this is going on for Israel, and they're dealing with the terror that Midian brings to them. Well, one day God calls a man named Gideon to lead an army against the Midianites. Now, the Midianite army was about 135,000 soldiers. They were quite the force to be reckoned with. And Gideon was supposed to lead an army to deliver Israel from their hand. But first of all, Gideon wasn't a general. Gideon wasn't a soldier, but God came to him and said, I want you to lead. I want you to make an, I want you to collect the army and I want you to do something great for your country. And God's plan was to use Gideon to deliver Israel, but it was really hard for Gideon to believe. And you read the story and Gideon's going, are you sure? Do you really think so? Do you really think that you want me in charge? And finally he is convinced, but then God continues to make things more difficult for Gideon. Gideon gets an army of about 32,000 men. Now, if you do the math, 32,000 versus 135,000, the odds aren't very good. But God comes to Gideon and says, you got too many. You need to whittle it down. And the story is very, very fascinating. You read the story sometime, but in the end, Gideon gets his numbers down to 300. 300 versus 135,000 soldiers. And God says, okay, that'll work. That'll do. And Gideon's saying, what in the world? How are we going to go 300 against them? And God says, well, listen to my plan. Because here God gets even more impossible. God says, you're not going to bring swords. You're not going to bring nuclear weapons. You're not bringing uh, cannons and you're not bringing spears and shields. Here's what I want you to bring. I want you to bring a trumpet. Everybody brings a trumpet. What if they don't know how to play the trumpet? Just bring a trumpet. I want you to bring a clay pot. And I want you to bring a torch. That's it. That's all you need. A trumpet, a clay pot, and a torch. And Gideon's thinking, how in the world is this going to work out? But read the story, and it, and they win. They win the battle with 300. And they win the battle with pots and trumpets and torches. No swords, no guns, no nothing. It was a great day. It was one of those victories that gets passed down in the stories of generations. And they remember the story of Gideon. 
Even Gideon in his day was a, was a very, was a, they wanted to make him the king because of this. He was, he was used by God in such a great way, even though he was nobody special and the army was nothing special. Even their weapons were, were to be laughed at. And yet God used all of that to prove a point that he alone delivered Israel, that he alone won the victory for them. And this is what Isaiah is referring to. This is what he's drawing on to tell Israel about a future victory. Isaiah refers to this victory to describe to them how God will once again deliver his people. How it will be impossible. How it will be unthinkable. Almost laughable. And yet, it'll work. It will be an unmistakable victory. And it will all be because of what God does. But then... We're not done. God is bringing more. God is bringing peace. The hope that God gives is that when He delivers His people, there will be no more war. There will be no more fighting. No more battles. In fact, verse number 5, it says, Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's what you do when you don't need them anymore. It's what the victors do for firewood. And it's connected to something that Isaiah had spoken of earlier back in chapter 2. He spoke of this one day, uh, one future day, and he says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Can you imagine a day like that? Nobody is, nobody's a soldier. Nobody has a weapon. Nobody needs it because there's no more fighting. Isaiah describes here a day of peace. A day of rest. A time of calm. Israel and Judah certainly were not experiencing that day then. But the hope was that one day they would. One day they would celebrate a victory they didn't fight for. They would enjoy peace and rest that they had not earned. God would deliver them. God would bring them peace and safety. And He would give them reason to rejoice. So how is God going to do all this? We know that God is going to do this. That's very clear. And that's what, that's what, that's what the, 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 very, the passive verbs all through this tell us and remind us that you're not going to do this, Israel, Judah. You're not going to win this on your own. You're not going to do anything about it. It's going to come to you and you are simply going to benefit and rejoice from it. So how are you going to do it, God? How is God going to bring light and hope and joy and peace with a baby? Not with a soldier, not with an army, with a baby. Through the virgin-born son of Isaiah 7.14, God will bring about all He has promised to His people, and it will come in the form of a child. Emmanuel was promised to us, to, to us as it was said in chapter 7. In Isaiah 9.6 we read this, For to us a child is born. Strange language. Right? Usually the parents are the ones to whom the child is born, but this time the nation is saying, the child is born to us. If the child is, is to be born, Kelsey is, is uh, going to, I, I think you're the next one. I don't know of anybody that's very close. Uh, but uh, when Kelsey finally has her baby and they name it Maher Shalal Hashbaz, as uh, we've, we're trying to get them to, to, to name the baby, a good Bible name. Uh, but uh, we won't say, to us, a child is born. We'll say, Nathan and Kelsey had a baby. They get to say that, but the whole country 
of, isn't going to say, to us, a child is born. But that's how Israel is going to respond. To us, a son is given. Because this is God's plan. This is God's doing. When Isaiah recalls the victory in Midian, we've got this, this picture of Gideon and, and his army of 300 in our minds, and then all of a sudden, he tells us how God is going to bring deliverance, and it's not with a soldier, not with an army, with a baby. And as spectacular as Gideon's victory was, this one to come will be even greater. This child who is to come will be wiser, stronger than all of Israel's greatest judges and kings. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Then look down in verse number six, and Isaiah describes this child in a couple of different, or several different ways. Firstly, is a, he's a wonderful counselor. And we don't have time to, we could really spend uh, our entire time on each one of these titles here. But just very briefly, I'll try to explain them. This first one, Wonderful Counselor, describes his supernatural wisdom. That's what the word wonderful means. Not just that he's a great guy, but he is a supernatural counselor. It's a term sometimes used to describe a military strategist. The one who offers wisdom and advice in going to war. And it's in response to Israel's need and their desire for answers. Remember last week we looked in chapter 8 and they were going to the necromancers and the wizards and the witches and they were looking on all of the wrong places trying to find the answers for their future. But here we see that the child will be the wonderful counselor. They needed to know what to do. They wanted to know what would become of them and here is a child who will be the wonderful counselor. He will know. In chapter 11, later on, we're told that this deliverer king would have the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then further on in chapter 28, we read this, the Lord of hosts is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. This child that is born to us is the wise and wonderful counselor that his people need. But next, he's not just that, he's also the mighty God. Not merely God-like, but God Himself. Think about that. Literally, God Himself. No one, not just one who has been used by God, like Gideon, or Moses, or, or, or Abraham, or David, or Samson. No, God Himself. This child will be divine. And this title, Mighty God, points to His divine ability to accomplish His will. He knows what to do, but he's also powerful enough to do what he wants to do. We learn from John's Gospel that the Word was God and that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This promised child would literally be Emmanuel. We talked three weeks ago about Isaiah 7.14 and whether or not who this child was in that day who was to be called Emmanuel. But we can all, we can all agree that, that if, if it was definitely fulfilled uh, completely and more fully in Matthew when Jesus was born. And they said they call His name Emmanuel because He is literally God with us. Not just a reminder that God is with us. He really physically is with us. And for 33 years, God walked among people. God became a man. And lived among us. And it says we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
when the angels appeared to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth, they said, Unto you is born this day Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. Israel and Judah needed protection and safety. And this Son who is given to us comes with all the power and might of God himself and is able to do what they needed to be done. The third title is Everlasting Father, and it points to his role as the protector and as the provider. We're not talking about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but rather how a a king takes care of his subjects is often likened to the way that a father takes care of his children. Israel needed a king who would provide for them and care for them, and this king would do it. And he would not only do it, he would do it forever. Because it says he is the everlasting father, meaning he will continually and forever care for his people. And the fourth and final title is Prince of Peace, indicating that the effect that his rule will have. Because he is the wonderful counselor who displays supernatural wisdom, and because he is the mighty God whose divine power accomplishes his plan to provide for his children as the everlasting father, his people will then enjoy peace, prosperity. He is the Prince of Peace who ushers in this time of rest, quiet. And then verse 7 once again reminds us and confirms exactly who it is that is going to do all of this for Israel. It won't come at the hands of a man. It won't come at the hands of a king. No foreign king will come in as they had hoped Assyria would do to deliver them. No foreign king is going to provide this hope for Israel. It will be God. Though God has used sinful people in the past, both believers and unbelievers, for this time, He will accomplishes will himself. He will do it with, with no help from men. With not using a, another person, God will come himself. And these, these titles indicate to us that Messiah will manifest God's presence in an even more tangible and, and impressive way than any human king ever could. Go back at some time and look at these, these titles again and think about the, the kings that Israel have had and how God is, 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 is using, uh, he's, he's stepping it up, if you will. David, probably the greatest king Israel ever had, cannot match to these qualities that this king will have. Ahaz, a horrible king, has, makes no match to what these kings, uh, what this king will be. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And that last little line, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Today, we recognize that these verses, these prophecies, speak of Jesus, of when God became a man, when God put on human flesh and lived among us for 33 years. Happened over 2,000 years ago, but God fulfilled His promise to Israel by sending Emmanuel to us. To us as a human race. By coming Himself to be with His people. And it's on Christmas that we remember that God didn't send an angel. God didn't send a prophet. He came Himself. The Father sent His Son into the world. And the Scriptures tell us that everything God promised Israel so found in Jesus Christ. Simeon held the baby Jesus in his arms and 
called him a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to the people of Israel. The Apostle John called Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone and who had come into the world. Jesus is the light for the darkness. In Luke 2, the angel spoke about Jesus when he told the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5 that we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our joy. In Jesus, we find deliverance and freedom. Paul wrote that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, wiser than the wisest king. He is our peace and our rest. Ephesians says Jesus is our peace. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, I'll give you rest. Come unto me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He broke the yoke of of burdens and and bondage in Isaiah 9. And he says in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He's wiser than the wisest king. He is the mighty God, more powerful than the strongest warrior. He is the everlasting father, protects, provides for his children all the time. He is the prince of peace, whose everlasting reign will provide peace and rest for his people. This is the miracle of Christmas. It's not just that a baby was born to a virgin. That's remarkable. But the miracle of Christmas is that this baby is the fulfillment of God's wonderful plan to bring His people hope. That God would bring hope in such an impossible way and would deliver His people by a baby in a manger. That joy and peace could be brought to millions of people who are in distress and anguish one small child that light could shine on people walking in darkness through an infant. When we look into the manger and ponder the nativity, yes, consider how a virgin conceived a child of the Holy Ghost and gave birth to a son. Wonder at the meager welcome that this tiny king received at his entrance into the world. Consider the unique circumstances surrounding His birth. But also remember this. Remember who that baby is. Remember what He is. He is the mighty warrior King. He is God's perfect plan to bring hope and light and peace to sinful men and women. To deliver a people who are enslaved and in bondage to save His people from their sins. It truly is, as the song says, a strange way to save the world. But it is God's way. It's the perfect way. Because only the wisdom of God could conceive a plan so wonderful, so impossible. Only the power of God can bring peace and freedom 
with a child's birth. What a shame this Christmas would be for us to look at the manger and simply see a baby who is born in a unique way. How tragic it would be to only see Jesus as the reason for the Christmas holiday and miss the reason that he came. Jesus came to bring light to those in darkness. Jesus came to bring freedom from sin. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it's God's unique and marvelous plan to redeem a fallen creation and bring them back into fellowship with him. He sent a baby to do a warrior's job. He sent a child to break the yoke of oppression. He sent his own son to save sinful people. Psalms say this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. Like sunshine at noonday, his glory shone in. The light of the world is Jesus. No darkness have we who in Jesus abide. The light of the world is Jesus. We walk in the light when we follow our guide. The light of the world is Jesus. Ye dwellers in darkness with sin-blinded eyes, the light of the world is Jesus. Go, wash at his bidding, and light will arise. The light of the world is Jesus. Will come to the light. It is shining for thee. Sweetly the light has dawned upon me. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus.